Open Source is an incredibly social art. Open Source is innovation. Like Open Source is enabling. Open Source is community. And open Source is weird. Open Source is incredibly important. Open Source is hard. Open Source is engaging. Open Source is collaboration. Open source is like running the show. Open source is ubiquitous. Open Source is, well, my life. <laughs> and open Source is not free. Hello, my name is Ildiko. And I'm Phil. And this is the My Open Source Experience podcast, where Phil and I will talk to open source veterans, newbies, their managers, and just really anybody who is either already involved in the open source ecosystem or would like to. This podcast will be all about the individuals, their voices, and their experiences that they've been through ever since they started to think about open source or getting involved in open source. Yes, we'll show the various different types of open source communities that are out there, some pluses and minuses, and how to navigate them. Before we dive in, let me give you some important reminders. People on the podcast participate as individuals. They do not represent any company or organization. All the thoughts and opinions are theirs. People share their stories and experiences, the way how they went through them and how they remember them and reflect how those experiences affected their lives, influenced their decisions and just changed maybe their careers or lives back then or ever since. Welcome to a new episode of the My Open Source Experience podcast. In this one, Phil and I are chatting with Rob Hirschfeld, and we are covering topics such as contributing to large open source communities and how it feels like when you are the user and not the developer in the group, the challenges of building architecture and community at the same time, and also the importance and art of saying no. Enjoy the show. Rob, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, history in tech, in open source, as much <laughs> as you want people to know about you? I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, my name is Rob Hirschfeld. I'm CEO and co-founder of RackN, um, which is a company that has its roots all the way back in some early OpenStack adjacent technology. So I know we're going to dive into that and we'll, we'll talk about, about that. Um, my career in IT and infrastructure goes back, uh, boy, 25 years now, where I was the co-founder of a uh, early, early cloud startup doing uh, virtualization and cloud um, back in the you know VMware ESX uh, beta days when before they released the product, um, and you know have been working steadily in that part of the you know the ecosystem for a long, long time since DevOps, infrastructure as code, automation. Um, you know, uh, I took a stint. I served, it was, I think, five years on the OpenStack board um, and led some really um, important initiatives for the OpenStack Foundation back when it was the OpenStack Foundation. Um, I think I was one of the advocates actually for the Open Infra name change um, coming back into it in the early days when uh, some of the edge, uh, the Open Infra groups were doing the edge work too. Um, so I've been really deeply involved in the infrastructure side of open source for, for quite some time. I have some interesting stories and 
I know I know we'll be we'll be talking uh, through some of that specific history. I I do. There was one time when I the the first time I remember anything about open source at all, though, this was in my first startup and we were at a software convention in San Diego um, at that the Corona. I think it's the Corona, that old that that classic hotel out on the out on the island. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a a software vendor convention and um, these crazy startup people showed up um all wearing red hats red fedoras um they they had just like gotten some money and they 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 were talking about this thing called linux that nobody understood and but they were so excited about what they were doing um and the red hats were very distinctive the red fedoras were very distinctive and so it's funny going back i always you know they made such an impression at that show just be with by their energy what they were talking about um you know and and the 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 red hat um that you know i, I still have this very crystallized mind even though it, it took me you know another <laughs> seven or eight years to figure out what they were actually selling <laughs> at that show um but it, you know, it's one of those things where you really um, sometimes the energy and enthusiasm for an you know how open source is is one of the you know one of the things that's very distinctive um, in how these communities get formed and and how people work together. Um, but that's my my earliest open source memory, if you will. Was that like late nineties? When was it? That? Was uh, no, it was two thousand. Okay. I think it was it was in between it was pre uh, September 11th in that in that okay. time frame. And um, in that in that next, you said seven or eight years uh, to figure it out. Um, like, did you have any further interactions with open source? And do, do you remember <laughs> what led from that first memory towards figuring it out and then actually thinking that oh maybe this is something that i actually want to do something with or get involved in it's um uh it's a great question because the 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 chain is funny um you know at the time things were proprietary it was unix not linux it wasn't clear, you know, that you that with Linux would would be popular or work at all. And it, you know, we were doing Windows development work. Um, and one of the things that was that was interesting that I wasn't that involved in was Java, um, which had sort of some of the early open source community formation around what those pieces are. And then you know, we would do you know use open source tools and products. A lot of it was more shareware. Nobody was worried about the source code and sharing source code at the time. It was much more of a source forge. You know, you go download stuff from you know shareware um, pieces. You didn't you didn't really think about how things were built uh, and what the collaboration meant for that. Um, and I think that's what most people's experience has been, um, at least until you know maybe a, a decade ago was you know, just taking things off the internet and using them. They didn't, didn't worry too much about anything collaborative. Um, I got interested in the collaborative aspect um, out of my experience at Dell, the pre-OpenStack formation. Um, I was, the team I was on at Dell was charged with bringing cloud and data products to market. And we brought um, 10 different products to market in a year. It was a crazy year. Um, and what would happen is when we would do that, 
it almost always triggered our partner to get bought, sell, change, right? We had a lot of trouble with, you know, our involvement literally made it harder for us to collaborate with those partners. And so either they would go off market because we were involved with them or, um, they would pat us on the head and say, you know, you people at Dell don't understand anything about software, just sell some servers and, you know, and we'll fix it. And we were a software team. And, and, you know, at some point you recognize it doesn't matter what your expertise is. You're going to, you, you walk in with the the people you walk in with. Um, but what happened is with these 10 solutions is we would get, you know, try to help operationalize the technology and the vendors would would not want to listen to us um, because they, they didn't think we had anything to offer there. Um, or the technology would get sold out from under us. And we so we had sort of these dual problems of not being able to have influence and not being able to have longevity. Mm-hmm. And when OpenStack showed up, it created a, a unique opportunity for us because it was actually a community where we could contribute code back, where our expertise mm-hmm. in doing something could, you know, we could actually have longevity in how things were going. We didn't have to worry about somebody taking the tech away from us. We didn't have to worry about somebody saying, oh, we, you, you can't use, you can't see that part of the software or change that part of the software. Um, and it was, you know, just completely game-changing for us. We were able to jump in and participate and be part of the community because the community was defined by collaboration as opposed to a vendor relationship. And that, that was my first open source experience. Um, and it was it was really, really a significant uh, difference in, in the whole interaction. And when did that start, Rob? When, uh, what year were you first engaged with uh, OpenStack? That was... Uh, 2008 i was i was i'm i'm what people would consider og openstack so i was at the what was the austin meeting where we were where rackspace was talking about the concept and bringing up the original designs um we'd been going down to rackspace and meeting with the teams about what they were trying to do um so so you know it was really that very those very first meetings 2008 2009 um, where we were forming what was what was going to happen. Um, and, and the nice thing is we built some tech for installing and operating and, and provisioning um, combined with work we'd been doing with Puppet and Chef that um, was really, you know, we, we had the right tech to help start doing install work for OpenStack. Um, so we, we had a lot to offer the team uh, that, that was forming on how to how to make that happen. So you were you were kind of part of forming the OpenStack community, right? Very much. Yeah, there was was just, it was a very small number of partners. Actually, a lot of the partners who uh, we expected to be uh, important players in the OpenStack days did not stay the course. Uh, Citrix was in there. I think it was Deloitte. There was a consulting company that was expecting to have a big impact. Um, And and Rackspace, which was really the foundation of it, um, really... um, took a very open collaborative perspective. So they they sort of, uh, which is different than, than what you see a lot of times nowadays, there wasn't a lot of code existing already. There was some, but not that much. Um, and, and Rackspace really was trying to build a coalition of partners to do joint development. 
Um, I'm not sure I would repeat that experience. It's a very difficult way to start a project. Um, and there were there were things that that happened as a consequence of that initial design decision that, you know, um, are still incredibly deeply embedded in how OpenStack operates. Um, right. This idea that it was going to have multiple hypervisors embedded in it was a um, logical but horrible decision at the same time. Um, because right, it, it just it made it it meant meant a level of complexity in the initial project to bring Zen in and Microsoft with Hyper VN and VM, you know, just maybe to bring in VMware that really didn't make the project any more functional. It made the the collaboration, the efforts more functional. And there's there's a lot of examples of things like that. The decision to be hundred percent in Python um was a very architecturally specific decision, and the decision to um, divide the project into sub-projects and have such an API-driven independent uh, approach. Those are all designed because of this idea of, you know, you have a lot of different parties who are going to collaborate together. Um, and and I'm not sure, you know, I, I, it works for what OpenStack needed to, to be. If you're just designing a software project, it's actually some of those things are actually really um, suboptimal uh, design strategies and add some complexity. That's for sure. the The idea that you're going to take core components of what you're building, networking, storage, authentic, uh, um, identity and authentication, compute management, right, and split them into teams with different leaders, um, and then you know have them all coupled through an API. Um, you what you you just you immediately start with the core parts of the inner workings of the system actually now having competing priorities and 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 you know they're decoupled in a way but from a product perspective those are actually tightly tightly coupled concerns and so it it makes the architecture more challenging right one of the things that was always an interesting I, I, there's a lot of things that opens in my OpenStack experience that I thought were amazing at the time. And I look back on and, and I'm like, what were we thinking? Um, one of them is every OpenStack presentation that, that I saw and I would give starts with this um, landscape picture with all these code names in it. Yeah. Right. And, and we, we would be like, Oh, look out, look at all this. And it's really, it's inside baseball. It's cool. Most of the people in that room didn't want to have to learn you know, a project code name to under, to talk about anything. They just sort of like, I need you to run my VMs for me, please. Right. And they're like, well, that's Nova. And you need, you really have a problem with quantum and you should go see that team. And I, it makes sense from an open stack and open source and collaboration team. Um, but if you're a user, that's really exhausting. I have, actually I have another story. This is from the Cactus Summit of of things that have changed in my perspective over time. Um, uh, Cactus Summit was I think 300, 400 people. It was a pretty exciting big uh, in the in um, Santa Clara's um, convention center. And um, somebody, I think it was from Disney, stood up in the corner uh, and said, "Hey, all this is really cool, but I need some help trying to make whatever work." And um, somebody else stood up across the room. It's like, this is open source. If you have a problem with it, you need to fix it. And I was sitting in the back. I'm like, wow, that's super powerful. They're, they're, this, this user is empowered to go fix and whatever. 
Um, and tr it, from an open stack, open source perspective, it's exactly the right answer. From a user perspective, now that I, you know, seeing myself as that that poor person who came here, now they came to an open source conference, they, they should know, but they're sitting there, I need help fixing your software and making it work. And you're basically telling that person, it's not, not my problem, you figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, it there's there's a, a balance in any of these projects to figuring out how to solve somebody's problem so they'll use your your project and um you know creating a community where people are incented to participate and help and and what and do what they can um and i, I think that's that's just an ongoing dilemma right what you know, there's a mix. A lot of times you'd say, oh, the vendors, you know, they, oh, they should have, you know, there should have been three vendors standing around that, that user trying to help them at the end of the day. And that might be the right answer. Um, but a lot of open source communities get very wary of that sort of, you know, immediate commercialization. And it's not that welcoming to, um, to a, a, a new user either. And I, I don't know, I don't have simple answers for this. These are just, you know, these are sort of those stories of, of what what it looks like as you're building a culture for how a project should operate and learning that what you see when you're inside the culture is awesome might look like outside the culture as um very problematic or unfriendly i think that's one of the really confusing things about open source even today Right in that, what is the relationship of an end user that is non-technical in an open source project? I mean, you know, I was taught in the beginning that you know, open source is developed by developers for developers, right? And if you want documentation, go read the code, because um, that's the only <laughs> real real way you're going to find documentation, right? And there's, and and with that mindset, you know, that that too has a purpose, right? And that 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 use is is not bad. But as you say, I mean, well, as far as that goes, you know, in the cactus days of OpenStack, developers couldn't figure out how to run OpenStack. No, they couldn't. No, that <laughs> it was, was it. Was a challenge back in the day just for just for developers, and it was part of that complexity of the various modules that were helping that along. Um, and just and to add to the timeline, the the cactus days were in 2012. So that's I right. think, or 2011, 2012, something along those lines. I think it was kind I of- think 20, I actually think even earlier, 2010. Earlier, 2010, no, I, yeah. And I think well, 2010 20, yeah. was the launch. 2010, uh, 2010. Was, then maybe settle on 2011. 2011 was, sounds right. I'd have to bring up, get my old cactus t-shirts. Oh yeah, that that would be fun. Uh, we have a lot of cool t-shirts from, have, from that community. Collection. Yep. <laughs> and- uh, um, it just um I mean it's it's interesting how how we are talking about that developer user relationship and I can still see almost the exact same conversations happening in in communities. So um I have yeah. a lot of questions to all the stories that that you that you talked about. <laughs> um one immediate one to to just this user developer relationship as um as you had this experience and then also eventually you had the realization that Maybe this is not exactly the way to go. Um, did you have any opportunity to um, to change uh, this kind of relationships? I don't know if you mm. were a user after that in another uh, project and community where you could use that experience to change the interaction. Or um, again, I'm, maybe I actually maybe tried. 
No, I mean, I, I tried when Kubernetes was forming and I was an early, early Kubernetes user. Um, I, I, um, because of, of the pattern, I actually started a um, cluster, uh, we called it uh, cluster ops, SIG cluster ops. And so um, early on in that community, I, I stepped in and was running uh, the special interest groups for operators so that we could have these conversations and, and try and do that. And what we did inside of uh, OpenStack, you know, we still kept trying to do inside of Kubernetes, it turns out to be really hard, is uh, in, in OpenStack, we built a project called Crowbar. It was designed to install OpenStack as part of this this sort of challenge, right? It's how you help people get moving, um, not from a developer perspective, but from a user perspective. And OpenStack had a lot of moving parts, and we automated all of those pieces. Um, incredibly powerful um, experience from that perspective. And so, you know, that's been almost, you know, just an ongoing story for me over the last 15 years now um, on you know, trying to sort of improve that out-of-the-box operational experience and the day-two operational experience for users using this, this the software. And, and I've really put a lot of time in there. Um, it, the interesting thing is it's very hard to make successful. Like the Kubernetes cluster ops work that I did turned into some great conversations with people who were using Kubernetes in general, but we had a lot of trouble finding repeatable operations patterns that people would keep using. And then that group sort of split into, um, uh, there's this, there's this um, cluster admin tool that they built to try and sort of standardize that stuff. And that ultimately became their cluster API work, um, which is trying to sort of standardize, but it's been, you know, a, you know, I guess almost a decade of, of work there, and they're barely at a point where they have a standard operating practice for how how these systems go. It the, the challenge with write the difference between writing software and using software, especially we're talking about infrastructure software, is the 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 permutations of running software is very difficult and very personal, and the versus writing software. You know, you're, you're sort of building the software, you can control it. It's a known input, known output. When you start talking about operating it, you know, somebody's choice of, you know, Dell versus HP versus Lenovo or the operating system you're, they're using or the number of drives or their network topology, you know, those are all logical choices, but there's no standard and they, you're, you're, the whole system falls apart. And what was hard in an open source community is to sit down with an operator is doing something. If you're an operator and they're an operator, for you to sit down in a room with them and help them solve a problem means you're like deep in the weeds of their ops issues. And what what I found is that it's it's really not community behavior for people to sit down and do that for other people. Um, and so the, the, a lot of the open source ecosystem work breaks down when you get into how I'm using something. Um, that ends up, you know, a paid relationship, like a vendor relationship ends up being a much more pragmatic. It's like, um, you know, your friends can be your therapist, but they're not going to do the right job as, <laughs> as paying, a, paying a professional. Um and and uh, it sounds like a funny analogy, but in some ways, ops is it can be like that. And you know, it's you know, it you, you, the, the the whole ecosystems don't work unless people invest time in helping solve each other's problems. 
fundamentally open source boils down to that. But if it's too expensive, if, if I spend all my time helping you solve your problems or, you know, that's all I'm doing, a lot of open source um, people get burned out because they're, they never do the stuff that they're supposed to do. They end up helping everybody else do their stuff. Um, and, you know, that, that leads to burnout and you can end up with a very short, you know, um, you can, or out of a job because you're spending all your time helping your, you know, your competitors or other people get their stuff working and you never do your own job. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to operations and, and operators, um, so I, I attended a couple of, um, uh, like ops meetup, like operators, mm -hmm. uh, are meeting, uh, which is why it is called ops meetup, uh, in various places, like maybe a few hours or one or two day sessions where operators are in one room. And my biggest takeaway is that I think that it's mostly a therapy session for operators because being in operations is just one of the most thankless things that you could possibly do for a salary. That's right. And um, like that group therapy kind of still actually works. And some, sometimes you, you still get ideas in terms of what other people are doing, how they are working around something. There's still something coming out of those sessions that that is digestible by developers that someone mm -hmm. from a vendor company could listen to, whether they're solving that in the open source um, community or somewhere in a bit more proprietary way. I don't have a say about that. I still kind of find it really valuable how you can extract information that otherwise would be hidden and yeah. would go through support tickets. And it's really not the same experience to complain through support tickets versus sitting in the room with people with mostly operators, but a few developers as well. I think most cases we either had people who were both kind of and going towards DevOps and working a little bit on code and more on, more on the ops side still, or we also did have a few contributors who were developers and they were not participating in operations um, in their companies, or if they were, in, uh, were an individual contributor then in, in that setting. So we still did have some connection and the information going through like people actually sharing the experience of what it feels like and what it takes to operate the software that the developers are working on. I think that just in itself is super valuable. Although yeah. I know that it's hard to show how it is valuable on like a great extent. Like this is how the community and the software as a it's, whole got be got better. You can't always really say that. However, you, you can't. what's your experience? The there's there's stories that come to mind from what what you're talking about um because i was i was at an op, an op summit in new york um and uh years and years ago and um we were in a big big conference room and people were complaining and and, and they were like they kept they kept bringing up issues and sort of the end of every issue was like and msmq is broken msmq is the message bus that hooks together all the openstack components and like, we got to like the sixth issue and people like MSMQ is a piece of junk. We should get rid of it. And, and I think it was a developer who, who sat back. He's like, you know, I, I don't think it's MSMQ. That's the problem. It's just the thing where the problem shows up. 
and all the ops goes, oh, okay. And so, right, it, and, and we see this like with the work we do all the time, sort of like we're a platform that connects all bunch of stuff together and we expose issues all the time. This is a problem with Crowbar too. And so you blame the tools, like your tool's broken. It's like, no, our tool's telling you that something else is broken, not the thing. And it, that was that. So there's an interesting argument here of what what's going on with MSMQ. I think there was actually a result from that where they improved the logging so that um, it was easier to trace back messages that were failing in MSMQ to the, the source of what, what the break was. Um, and so I, something good came out of that. There, there was another in instance um, back, this is in the Boston conference, Diablo conference, when Vish created um, dev, uh, the DevStack tool. And so um, just to set the contrast, at, at that conference, uh, Dell had flown in a rack of servers, mini rack, and we were in the, the hall demonstrating fully autonomous OpenStack installs on a rack of servers. It took about an hour, no, no, it's less than that, 15 minutes to get a full rack up and running. Uh, and so I'm running around showing people, hey, look, we've made it super easy for you to install OpenStack with a click of a button. It's great. And uh, Vish and I were in a, Vish is one of the core, early core developers. Um, and um, he gets in the elevator with me and he opens up his laptop and says, Rob, I got to show you this. I have this thing called DevStack and it's a one machine install of OpenStack. And it's, and it was running in Vagrant and, and he was like, and now developers can install OpenStack without any of the extra infrastructure. I'm like, you realize I just automated all that five machine bring up stuff. He says, I know it's way too much stuff. Just this developers are going to love it. And, and I, I, I was like, Vish developers are never going to hit the networking and cross machine issues that OpenStack is going to need to get right. If you give them a single machine install of OpenStack. Um, and he's like, yeah, but that, it's going to take too much time. I'm, I, I just needed to, I just need to have it all work on my laptop. And, uh, that was, that was a seminal moment where I was, uh, you know, you were asking about times when I watched OpenStack uh, sort of journey into one path, the, the advent of DevStack, which is very developer friendly, literally undermines the developer's ability to expose and find multi-machine operational issues. And there is no useful um, OpenStack that's not a multi-machine OpenStack. That's not. That's maybe too broad. But OpenStack is a multi-machine architecture system, and and you know sometimes if you're not careful, you collapse out the thing that you actually need to be troubleshooting. Um, I personally, I I think that the the reliance on DevStack actually set OpenStack back about two or three years in 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 progress because it meant that developers could move very quickly without hitting issues that were would be easy to, to diagnose and find if they were front and center all the time that's it's all it's this is true of any project you build but if you build something that that hides what most of your users are going to be stumbling on um then you you've you've made it much harder for you to connect to those users right you've you've separated those concerns in ways that don't necessarily help you so yeah. But didn't things yeah. ultimately get shook out as they were doing the integration testing? I know that there were some pretty hefty clusters of machines that were doing OpenStack testing and the whole concept of Zool and, you know, the whole Zool, Zool bringing all that up. Up until um, relative, I mean, Zool's most, 
most of Zul's lifetime before I was less became less and inactive was still doing dev stack installs. So Zool was doing tons, you know, hundreds of integrations every day, thousands of integrations every day, but against dev stack as the integration point. Um, I, I don't have any idea when they, we were actually building multi-server integration tests. And and what you could argue is you're like, I don't need, you know, my first pass should be as fast as it possibly can be. And that's great. And that, that's true. But there's there's issues that only surface when you've got a multi-machine test environment. Um, and they're much harder to set up and <laughs> and validate. And they're going to, they're, you know, you know oh, yeah. there's a whole layer of build, building those environments and making them go. I wanted to get back to your your topic of burnout, yeah, um, and spending a lot of time working with users that were having operational issues versus um, versus getting your own work done. Yeah, um, did you see did you see that as an issue in in OpenStack uh, across the board, or did you see other forms of burnout? Um, and and I'm wondering, mm. I mean, maybe this can talk a little bit about what what you do. Um, but you know, given the fact that operators needed so much and need so much help, um, you know, did any kind of a good consulting, uh, set of uh, cottage industry form up out of helping users <laughs> get their operations going? Oh my word. Um, there, there was a lot of money made and a lot of investment, uh, investor capital, uh, burned, um, Saw doing exactly what you're describing. Um, I'm trying to think of the right the order to answer this question because um, I have some personal stories on it, and I, I have I, I think there's a really interesting question here about the OpenStack consulting. Um, so there there was especially in the early OpenStack days, um, uh, Mirantis was the most notable, but not the only. Um, did a lot of OpenStack setups and builds. Um, and made a lot of money doing OpenStack consulting and builds. But one of the challenges is that there wasn't a lot of repeatable process around how to do that. So like when we were doing Crowbar, we were really focused on trying to make these repeatable process builds, but we were, it was hard to move fast enough to be like, cause there were people who wanted to build some really big infrastructures really, really fast. And so um, a lot of bespoke OpenStack installs got got built that nobody knew how to upgrade or patch. And this is two sides. One is OpenStack wasn't particularly worried about automating upgrade and patch. And the consultants weren't particularly worried about auto automating upgrade and patch. And so we, um, we built a lot of OpenStack installs that were um, not, uh, not repeatable and not upgradable. Um, and and you couldn't learn. This is like one of one of the things that drives our mission at RackN forward is this idea that we actually want to have automation that's reused and repeatable. And if I fix a bug in, my, in the automation, I want to go back and help you. Or Crowbar wasn't didn't. But this is what we wanted Crowbar to do, but we couldn't get Crowbar to do it. Which was if we fixed Crowbar, then you could patch Crowbar, and then it would you'd get you get the improvements on the automation on the other side. Um, there's a, there's an, an interesting story from Crowbar's early history because Dell had been doing Crowbar sort of as a single vendor project, and SUSE got very interested in it and and wanted to collaborate with us. Um, and and Crowbar actually they maintained Crowbar long after Dell um, stopped and made, you know it was their OpenStack installer. 
um, for, for a long, long time. Um, and when we were doing that collaboration with them, they would do development work against Crowbar in during the day in Europe. And they would test it against uh, SUSE because that's who they were, get things working, commit their patches, and then leave for the night. And we would show up in the morning and um, bring in their patches, and it would break all of our CentOS, Red Hat, and uh, um, Ubuntu installs because they didn't test on any of that stuff. Right. Right. Um, and and that for us was that you know that was a, a good example to me of this of this investment to make the partnership work. We had an engineer who would do nothing but check their builds, fix whatever they broke for the other operating systems and, and keep that process going. Um, and it, it caused, you know, a lot of burnout and stress for us because we had developers who couldn't move forward because they had committed a change and we didn't want to revert the change, you know? And so, so that, investment and you know we had a lot of conversations with our leadership of is susa worth it if they are slowing down our commitments and you know the things that we had to get done in building that project and this is the the classic example there you know there was benefit to them being in the project and collaborating with us but you know our internal teams and our our customer sales and what we were doing and what our promises were were being slowed down because we we couldn't move as quickly because we were we were cleaning up stuff that they had to do um so you know that that type of thing is very very stressful we we had people who you know just were like i'm i'm not i don't want to work on the project anymore because we keep getting behind from that um there was another interesting case that that um, where I felt personally burned. We'd been we I'd, I'd personally committed certain features to um, Rackspace as part of that cycle, so that they could meet some deliverables. And um, our business people were we adapted uh, Crowbar to work in Hadoop also, which nobody in OpenStack cared about, but it was important to Dell. Um, and we got to a point where, from our products perspective, where we invest, you know, we had to finish the Hadoop features and the rack space people who were waiting on me to do something. I had to go back and tell them we're not going to get it done. Um, and those are, you know, realistic pros and cons for doing this type of, of thing. Uh, I'm, you know, I, 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 I think I actually told them that they could have, they could do it themselves if they wanted to, but if they had, I'd still have to go and put engineers on testing, validating, making sure it didn't break our stuff. Um, so it's really hard for that. Um, but I do see, you know, just open source in general, you watch, um, you know, projects that get a whole bunch of, of traction or especially single person projects that get a whole bunch of traction. Um, and then, you know, the person who's doing that ends up having to chase fixing, you know, supporting everybody else's needs to get that type of adoption. And if it doesn't serve, you know, if they don't have a, a benefit to doing that it it does it you know they either run out of money doing it or they get exhausted wow um, yeah 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 and, and or get pulled off right it's you know that's what you know the cases i'm giving here is where i had leadership pulling resources off projects because they were spending all their time servicing somebody else's priorities um you know, we tried to address that in the OpenStack. We had a product management working group 
mm-hmm. um, where we were trying to coordinate activities across everybody else and, and bring in some more coordination on that. Um, we had a lot of trouble getting that, that running. Um, and I think some of that is the, how OpenStack leadership was structured, um, being very developer led and developer focused. Um, there's, you know, some of the commercial, you know, getting commercial interests to have more say there's, there's a lot of cultural challenges in resource balancing for that. And I, I think that people assume that open source resource management is free that what they, they make two mistakes. One is they assume re- developer resources are free when they're actually much more expensive. People don't think about it this way, but but they're very expensive in open source projects. Um, and I, I think they believe that they, they can be directed more easily. Um, and those, those are, those are myths. It's in some ways, it's just, it's magical when it happens because people aren't doing it very intentionally. Um, but it makes it incredibly hard to steer the ship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that, that product management form was, it was a first of its kind. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know any other project that actually had such a concept and it was, was interesting to watch. Um, and at the time as well, I mean, OpenStack was, as far as I'm aware, the busiest and most, um, it was just the most active project with the most um, organizations trying to get so much done at the same time. So that, that kind of balance of, um, of doing what you need to for yourself versus what you need to do for the project to, to move things along. That was hard for a lot of the leadership of, of the OpenStack project. I could sit back and watch that struggle that they had. It, it was it's it's a really interesting challenge and in how it wins. I agree with you. I've met and, and I talk to open source, open stack people all the time. What we created in the community um, and still is there was unique in in the the way the community operated and people's shared interest in, in how things were going. It's not present in in communities the same way that I've seen. Like it's there's a lot of great people in the Kubernetes community, but they don't feel like a cohesive community in the same way that OpenStack mm-hmm. felt. Um you know at the same time we created a lot of bizarre fiefdoms out of the project structures. Um and and a lot of gamification in how those products the those projects were were working. Um that you know ultimately made you know it slowed down it slowed things down it it created a lot of polarization um you know that that sort of started it that tide turned if if you will but yeah i I would remember having you know trying to influence a project lead (laughs) to to pick up a feature set or something like that or um oh boy i distinctly remember uh, who was it i was on a bus in paris hearing about how great um Keystone was the auth the auth service and all these cool features they've they've added. It was amazing. And it was. They did this great stuff because they had this vision that Keystone would be a standalone project for do for doing auth. Um I, and I, I mean, even as a board member at the time, I'm like, but there's other projects that are dependent on Keystone to deliver these features to move those projects forward. He's like, I know, but I've got, you know, the potential to be a standalone auth project and that that's a a weird tension within the project right there you're are you servicing your project and what 
could happen in this, or are you servicing the needs of how the the the, the integrated whole would work? And you're right. I, the, we were really unique with the product management forum, but at the end of the day, we didn't have any clout to help Keystone or all these projects have similar similar things make sort of a you know your 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 priority list actually needs to be in service of the group um yeah. and and all the people were well intentioned and they listened and they they tried to do those things but it only takes two or three developers in a project to show up and be like i really want to work on these you know an open source project i really want to work on these features um to pull a project momentum somewhere else um they flood the queue with with patch requests for feature development that is not maybe the the direction that you thought you were going yeah back to like what you said i mean having fiefdoms but having a lot of interdependencies between the modules right it was a very hard design and i i we we when we started it there was you know there was a thought that it would it let you know two pizza team type of thing and let people run and like one of the things that happened with keystone is that rackspace was like we we're, we got this we're going to fund keystone and they sent it off to a uh you know, some outsourced developers that they had working on the thing who didn't like the design and basically threw a whole bunch of stuff out. Um, and like, I think tried to write it in Java or I don't know, it was crazy. <laughs> um, and it took, you know, it took, well, I think two release cycles to get that sort of straightened out. Um, and that was, we, we used to argue about benevolent dictators or not, you know, and, and that, that type of thing. And that's, there are times there is no benevolent dictator in OpenStack. There's times when that, that type of singular authority, you know, can force you to say, I'm not, you know, if you keep working in this area, we're not going to take these pulls, yeah. um, and, and shut down work for that. Um, a consensus consensus is very hard to do. Uh, very, very hard to do. <laughs> yeah, particularly given the size. Yeah. I, and yeah. and separating into little projects is one way to make consensus work because you've got into it, you know, you don't have to have as big an argument. You can have the controls. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't drive consensus doesn't necessarily drive things together. Um and that's like one of the um just the little news of the day coming, right? Some of the things that's interesting with the HashiCorp fork. Right. Open Terraform now has a ton of of multiple people chasing what it should be. That might be great. It might drive that project faster um, because uh, HashiCorp was not you know, moving it as quickly as it, it, it might move now. But at the same time, HashiCorp had a vision and a direction. They they made this, you know, they, they controlled that. And it'll be interesting to see that, you know, we're about to witness that balance of a lot of enthusiasm and developers and ideas coming into a project. Um, and it's not as clear yet if they, if how they're going to say no. Um, one of my, one of my lessons at Dell, I, I don't want to tell too many stories, but one of my lessons at, at when I was at Dell, everybody thinks of these big organizations is like um, behemoths who can't do anything and the slow and, and all this bureaucracy. And what I found at Dell was that the thing that they had to be really good at, it's hard is they have to say no to stuff. There were brilliant people with great ideas, tons of opportunities, easy paths to market, but you know, they could only do so much stuff effectively. And so the thing they really had to do is be much better at saying no than, than average. Um, and that's not a discipline that, you know, people are used to having um we have a tendency to want to say yes in open source projects oh yes you're bringing your talents do what you want to do um 
And a lot of cases, you know, no is actually the, the most effective answer for everybody involved. Well, it's a balance, right? I mean, that's exactly it. It's that that's one of the interesting things for me in, in open source communities that that work well is, you know, I've always I've always found the belief that um, as long as you're not doing something detrimental to some other portion of the community, even if nobody else wants what it is you're building, go ahead and do it. And there may very well be uh -huh. network effects that end up playing off nicely. <laughs> the, the challenge um, is that there there also might be um code that breaks other things and cause and isn't documented and is somebody you know somebody's dragging things forward that's not not doesn't have a long-term maintenance strategy in it so i that's i i agree with you and, and you know i guess as i've come uh, uh, you know along i see open source projects with a ton there's two things there's two things one is they have a, they have a ton of um partially finished things i mean products do too don't don't get me wrong um but um you know that there's there's a lot of that um and then the question i've been asking a lot recently is just how much can open source uh fix architectural issues and change architecture because it's it's very difficult for an open source project to reconsider its architectural work inside of its own framework those those end up being either forks or you know rewrites um and they're they're and it depends right i mean it that that is a cultural aspect i would say of an open source project i'm going to go back to linux as one that's been refactored more times than you shake a stick at <laughs> because linus because linus feels that way right i mean he'll he'll say well, okay this release we're not doing anything except totally refactoring the networking subsystem because you guys and your wireless drivers are ticking me off because nothing works well, um, and, you know, you get something like System D, which, you know, people have a lot of feelings about, but converged, you know, uh, systems, you know, management across the board in a, in a really important way. And that was an incredibly divisive um, uh, change that took actually a lot of political capital to get through the system. And I still hear people whining about it. <laughs> um, it and mm -hmm. you're right, right. And, and it was interesting because I talked to my, our CTO about system D and he's like, I absolutely hate it. And it's the best thing that ever happened to Linux because it can, he's like, now I don't have to worry about which distro I'm using to figure out how to configure stuff and start services, which had been a nightmare, absolute nightmare. So, and that, and that's, and that's for me, that's, that's actually, I often will look back to the Linux community because the ability to take technical excellence and drive to specific decisions. I mean, Linus talks about, you know, oh, we got a, we got a lot of lieutenants. It'll, it'll be fine when I retire if I'm hit by a bus, right? He gets the hit by the bus question all the time. I'm not so sure, you know, I mean, I, I, I give, I give uh, that community, I give him a lot of credit for the culture because he got to build that for 10 years, right? Before corporate yeah. interest, you know, OpenStack didn't have that opportunity. No. There were a lot of deadlines that folks were trying to meet, not the least of which I was at HP at the time. I don't know if you know my history, but I was, I was, I was at HP when you were at Dell okay. um, in, in doing that work. And so, and we were, we were trying to get something stood up, right? We were <laughs> back in those early days, we were trying to get public cloud stood up quickly. So deadlines. I remember. Us. Oh yeah. And, and that was, you know, again, a different, a different culture, a different set and that cultural change. I mean, that's, 
that's what I find so very interesting about open source because open source is a license type. It's not a collaborative <laughs> development type, right? And so There's the no collaborative instructions on the collaboration. Exactly, exactly. And, and we see a great spectrum, which is kind of the point behind this podcast for, for Ildigo and I is to talk about what those differences are and, and cherry pick what, what are the best ones, Yeah. Right? what actually works. So, and OpenStack is a great example. OpenStack is an amazing example. OpenStack is an amazing example. It is. And on that point, like Rob, since you were part of kind of the formation of it um, and you were at Dell at that time. Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of wondering how it how the experience was for you in terms of was Dell supportive of what was forming? <laughs> did, they, did they have an understanding what they are getting into? Was it like, okay, let, 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 let's have the software team playing around a little bit. Why not? And then we will also build servers in the meantime. And that brings us revenue. How uh, was it? Oh my goodness. Uh, completely <laughs> did I, did I just step on something? <laughs> no, no. Um, it was it was awesome um and completely foreign um to dell um so um the reason it worked is because rackspace and the rackspace leaders had um personal a personal relationship with michael and and michael wanted to sell michael dell wanted to sell a lot of servers to Rackspace at the time. And we're was selling a lot of personal servers to Rackspace. Um, so there was, there's a lot of reason to want, this was, you know, before Amazon was the clear leader. Um, and so there was, there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, and, and just geographically, right. We were in Austin, um, Rackspace was in San Antonio, geographic proximity made a total difference here. Um, but one, you know, basically, um, I think Lou, who's CEO of Rackspace at the time, called Michael and said, we're going to do this thing. We want you to help. Michael said, I have no idea what that means, but of course we'll help. Um, and sent my team got sent in to like figure this out, do what you need. Um, and the fact that we had, you know, Michael's blessing on making it happen, open doors that we would never have been able to open otherwise. Um, and when we went to do Crowbar and we're like, we're going to do this open source, we were the first open source project Dell had ever done. Um, I mean, they did a ton of Linux and Linux adjacency stuff, which is Dell actually deserves a lot of props for their Linux groups. They'd never initiated a project like this. Um, and, you know, we we just sort of flew through a whole bunch of stuff. Um, a bit of asking for, uh, asking for permission after the fact, but... We had, you know, top level buy-in to make it happen. And then it started getting, you know, very, very positive response. And it became easier to keep keep those pattern those practices going. Um the thing that I think was was less clear and I think makes it hard for other projects to follow is there was a degree of lightning in a bottle because of Michael's interest, because of OpenStack's celebrity, because we had a, a small software team that really understood how to do software and wanted to, to make that happen, those things lined up. Um, and it became increasingly hard um, to go back and, and, and do that. I actually have a big cup in my, in my uh, office just around the corner um, that of this, um, we had a contest of OpenStack versus VMware sales, and uh, 
the OpenStack was outselling the VMware efforts at, at the time. Um, so they, we got awarded the cup and then, then the whole thing got sort of dissolved and I still have the cup, but we only had to win it one year to get the cup. Um, the, yeah. <laughs> the, but there was a lot of excitement over this sort of revolutionary model on how we were going to do it. And it's easy for Dell because Phil for HP too, Dell would make money selling servers. They didn't have to worry about software margin on this. And so it was a very aligned moment for Dell to be like, oh, we're going to sell servers. We're going to not have to worry about VMware, which is giving us all sorts of trouble. Um, and then they bought them and things changed. But um, <laughs> and and that's this is, you know, that which is a lesson in just how fickle that sort of thing is, right? It was like, hey, this is great. And then a couple of years later, they own VMware and they're like, this isn't so great. Um, <laughs> um, and so that, that was a turning. One of the things that actually made the whole thing change in our mind, um, another funny story, is that we started partnering really deeply with Red Hat on this. And um, we were having this, while we were getting the partnership going, um, we had like this upstairs, downstairs moment. Um, my bosses were meeting with Red Hat bosses about getting the deal. And I was meeting with the Red Hat technical people about um, their OpenStack efforts. And the their Red Hat people were like, oh, we're so glad to be working with you, um, with you, Dell, because y'all have, you know, understand the ops for OpenStack really well, and you can help us get the ops stuff. Red Hat at the time had, had been changing their install strategy every six months. Um, Things like Stay Puff, if people ever remember what that crazy things were, they had like it was it was literally flavor of the day. Um, so they were like, we're so excited to be partnering with you. Uh, two floors up, um, my boss was telling the Red Hat people, we're so excited to be partnering with you. We don't know anything. Um, please just tell us whatever <laughs> we need to do, and we'll we'll do that. Um, and so. Um, that was a very, it, the, the debrief on that meeting was very weird. It was very weird. And that's, that's in some ways says a lot, not much about OpenStack, but a lot about corporate partnerships. But, and, and yeah. the, the structure of big companies, I mean, even just what you Correct. said that you, you, you had the top level buy-in in terms of joining this, whatever this is, how this thing will be that became OpenStack. Um, and then it also sounds like that you had a, re a really lucky alignment in terms of having a little bit of playroom on the software side and having the team with a really good understanding and it just everything magically lined up for this to be successful. Is that a fair thing for uh, observation to say? There's So I, I think so, although I, I don't, there, there's a degree of luck and that then we definitely you have to be prepared for luck if you will mm -hmm. i think that there's a takeaway for me which is at the end of the day dell's a hardware company not a software company not an ops company mm -hmm. and so what what you have to realize is there's times when you're involved in an organization that's not going to revert to mean um go back to what it it's sort of base base is and you can you can be in those organizations and take advantage of a moment where it's willing to change or willing to do something different. One of the lessons in the it, to me in all this stuff is that but organizations generally do revert to mean. So you know Dell's a hardware company; it's going to keep doing things that make it a hardware company. It's very very difficult for any company to not be true to its core mission. 
And so, it, it, and this is, I think, a, a lesson for anybody who wants to do open source inside of a company or even open source inside of an open source company, you figure out what the mission of the company is. And if the work you're doing in open source aligns with that mission, then you're you're golden and you'll make the investments and things will work out. If you're off mission in the work you're doing, and what we did with Crowbar was a lot of fun, but it was off mission. Um, and so, you know, I, I didn't appreciate at the time, you know, you have borrowed time when you, 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 you were living on borrowed time. And there's times when you can pull that over the, the edge and it'll be great. Um, I think we pursued things that um, used up some of the time that we had while we were off mission that might have made created longevity. Um, it's just really hard to know at the time. But yeah, if you're if you're not on mission um, in in any project, but I think open source is actually even more fragile um, because it's not funded. And so until you know, if you're investing in an open source thing. Um, you have a limited time to figure out the the funding model for it, and if if it's aligning to the mission around what you're doing, and if if you can't figure those two things out or don't have a path to, then ultimately the the, the investments you're making are going to fall apart. Yeah, to say, I, that's brutal hard. That's maybe harsh truth, but no, I I wanted to hear the the harsh truth, and I think. What you said about mission, that, that is true for both open source as well as the the corporate environments, yeah. like inside inside big companies, like you have to have the experience to know what's going on in there because otherwise it's just it's impossible to to see or, or even just imagine what what is going down there in different departments and different parts of the company, what is actually bringing in revenue, what's the actual mission, how it is changing. I also think that that some of the observations we are making, we're only able to make it because it's like one, five, 10, 15 years later. And now, <laughs> now in retrospect, oh, I understand it now, but there was no way at that time for anybody to really truly understand. And seeing that, you know, bird's eye view, like you're, you're, you're in it or, or yeah. you're watching from the outside. You can't really do both in my experience. Can you tell us something about yourself um, that's not tech related? <laughs> uh, lately, I started taking ballroom dancing lessons uh, with my spouse and love Excellent. it. Absolutely Excellent. love it. Uh, highly recommended learning to lead and learning to follow. Um, gender wise, I get to learn to lead and uh, it's hard and learning to follow is hard. I have a lot of sympathy for my wife on my bad leadership, <laughs> um, but um, you know that I've, I've really enjoyed that as a as a new activity. And with that, that's all, folks. That was our episode for today. I really hope that you enjoyed the show. This season is full of very interesting topics like open source in academia, mentorship programs, how you design and develop infrastructure in a project together with thousands of people, and a really interesting one, money in open source. Stay tuned because the next episode is just around the corner. Um, you know, that, that was my first experience. Oh, I loved it. Uh, Y'all had, had me telling stories that I haven't even thought about. And Thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure. Like, I will have coffee with the two of you any day for the rest of my life. Like... <laughs> <laughs>